Welcome back to the Live from AC Second Feed. I'm Sam Mulberry. Um, today's interview is an interview I did in December December 16th of 2014 with Professor Christian Collins-Wynn of the Bethel um, Biblical and Theological Studies Department. Um, Christian's somebody that I didn't really know very well, but I was really excited to talk to, and he had just a really, really interesting um, a really interesting story, and um, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this interview. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to um, I'm going to get the episode started. Remember, we're going to be posting um, a few more autobiographies this week, and we should have new episodes on the feed of the podcast that you've um, that you come to this feed for the podcast that you love live from AC Second. Amy makes us try stuff. Nothing rhymes with gear. It's election shock therapy, uh, and maybe a couple of other things as well. So stay tuned to the feed because we're going to start dropping things once our semester starts at the end of August. Welcome to Autobiography. I'm Sam Mulberry. My guest uh, this time is Christian Collins Wynn. He's from the Biblical and Theological Studies Department uh, here at Bethel University. This is a really interesting podcast for me because Christian's someone that I didn't really know very well. I mean, we met before. Uh, I had lunch with him a few summers back. But he's not somebody that I had talked with a great deal, so it was really fun to sit down, uh, learn a little bit about uh, about him and about his uh, intellectual journey. Um, and it was a journey that kind of led in some different directions. Uh, and like all good journeys, doesn't have sort of a, a clear, bright line from one point to another. So it was it was fun to um, it was fun to get to know Christian a little bit, and he's someone that I look forward to uh, to getting to know more uh, over over the years to come. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Christian Collins Wynn. Well, I mean, it's kind of—I mean, it's kind of an honor to be asked, honestly. Like, I don't know if it's an honor, but well, there's 200 and something faculty, and so to be asked to do it is sure like, that's something sure. small. So well, I hon- appreciate it. Honestly, the the, the reason that um, that that you sort of rose to the list is you're somebody who I've, I've I mean I've met, we've talked a little bit, but I don't really know that much about you, and. Um, it's fun to interview people I know really well. But right. It's also interesting, I think, to interview people that I, I I've been in contact with, but I don't know, and 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 would like to get to know better. I'm interested in the the kind of work that you're interested in. I'm interested in uh, Pietism um, a great deal, and sure, yeah. um, and we've had the chance to interview you for a couple other projects. Right. Right. So um, yeah. So cool. Um, my guest is Christian Collins Wynn um, from the uh, Biblical and Theological Studies Department. And your, uh, what type of theologian? I was going to say, I was going to say what type of theologian you are. Why don't you tell me? <laughs> That's a good, actually, good question. Um, I basically my title is historical and systematic theology, but I'm really more historical. I'm a historical theologian, which basically means I'm too historical for the theologians and too <laughs> theological for the historians. It's kind of the way that it sort sure. of works out. Sure. I think That's where all the interesting work happens, right? It's in between those Yeah, things. it's sort of an interdisciplinary kind of orientation. Uh, I'm deeply interested in historical context, you know, in which ideas are shaped and formed. But I'm also interested in the truth of the matter, you know, and sort of maybe that's where the systematic piece, I guess, like mm-hmm. you were interested specifically in the the doctrine itself. Um, so, but historical theology, really, I always wanted to be a history teacher when I was a kid. So, um, and I started out studying just church history when I first was doing my master's and I didn't do very well. <laughs> and I, but then I started taking these classes in, uh, basically they were classes in historical theology and I sort of found my niche. So 
Interesting. Well, let, let's actually go back. I mean, this is about uh, autobiography a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, I've started to frame this question just around the ages that my kids are. So my son is nine years old. So I like to ask everybody, like, if you were to think about yourself as a nine-year-old, like, what were you like? Wow. I, wow, as a nine-year-old. So 1980. Um, I was, um, so I'm the child of a divorce. Okay. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was two and I think, so I have a, I have two children right now. So one of them is actually nine and the other one's 17. And, um, my nine year old, it has ha- always had sort of ADHD and some PDD, which is, um, very low autism mm-hmm. kind of spectrum. Um, and when he was, uh, I guess it was four or five, um, and we took him to visit, like, people on my side of the family, they were like, wow, that's, that's exactly like Christian was. Hmm. And so I think um, not only had I – I was a kid who was shaped in, in, in some sense by divorce. So I, was always, I always felt lonely. I was the only child. But I probably also had some serious ADHD. <laughs> um, so uh, when I was nine, actually, we moved um, – from our home in Charlotte to Raleigh. And, uh, yeah, so I was starting a new school. And, I mean, I was a, I was basically a good kid, but I also got into trouble. Okay. And, you know. Uh, would you would you have been one of the students in your class where the, the teachers would have been like, yeah, that, that's – I mean, the, were you a good student? Were you – No. Okay. No. Okay. Um, I was not. And I think my parents, um, like, to this day – will say things like, I can't believe you became a professor. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's on, after I get over the, you know, like, what do you mean you can't believe I, you know, after I get over that, it's really like watching my my youngest, it, it's a struggle to be able to concentrate and be interested. Mm-hmm. Like he wants to play video games and run around. I constantly wanted to play outside. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't care anything about books or learning or, I was interested in the world and interested in, play acting and mm-hmm. those kinds of things, scenarios and all that kind of stuff. So I doubt my teachers would have thought that. Mm-hmm. So when did that change? I mean, I presume that changed, right? You're here. So like when, when, yeah. did, when does that start to? Well, um, I, so, so I was such a difficult handful for my parents that eventually I got sent to military school. Oh, really? Yeah. So I got sent to military school when I was in ninth grade. So the second half of ninth grade and all of tenth grade, I was in military school. Paint that picture a little bit because I, I all I have is sort of a a eighties movie version. Taps of, version. Yes, yeah. kind of close to that. I mean, it's a pretty violent place. Um, uh, I mean, I would say if you if you looked at the demography of the students, a third of those students are. Um, come from wealthy families and they've been sent effectively to a boarding school. Mm-hmm. A third of those students have, um, have actual interest in going into the military. And then there's this other third where, and it ranges there where these are problem kids mm-hmm. and they've been sent away. And some of them were court ordered sent away. And some of them were like me. Hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, there was always the chance of, kind of violence or something like, I mean, I, in fact, I almost lost all of my front teeth, uh, because of an incident when I was at military school. However, 
Um, all that aside, it was there actually because you couldn't watch TV, basically, mm-hmm. that I really started enjoying reading. Hmm. And so it was the novels of James Michener that kind of got me through hmm. some of the hardest. Um, and it was actually at military school. I think it was in 10th grade, and I was taking like my world history class, or maybe I was in 9th grade, I can't remember. And I was in my class, and... Um, the guy had taught the lesson, and we took a quiz, and he'd given us some silent time afterwards mm-hmm. so we could read or whatever. We could read in another class if we wanted to. And I remember taking out my dry, boring history textbook and reading, like, four chapters ahead. And there was just something about it that, like – and, I, and I, when I think to myself about, okay, I wanted to be a history teacher, I will usually go back to that moment. And then there was another moment, I think, when I was in 11th grade. Um where I'm like, yeah, that was when I was really interested in this topic. I huh. never thought about being in college. I thought more sure. high school. So, what uh, do you remember? What it was you were like? What what history it was, or like it was? I it was like the you know Paleolithic. It was huh. it was an it was ancient history basically. Um, I mean, maybe I read up into the Greeks and Romans or something like that. Um, but yeah, that was the. I, I I remember that. Or so, I mean, I have several memories, of course, from sure. military school, and that's and that's definitely one of the good ones. Huh. That's it. so so so. If you if we had asked you then what you wanted to be, I mean, would you have said a history teacher, or were there other things you were as you sort of thought about what your life was going to be? That honestly, I think, was the main answer that I had. Really, um, at least from tenth grade on. Okay. Part of that is probably because I didn't want to give a lot of thought to what I wanted sure, to do. Sure. And I'd come upon something I liked, and so I was like, okay, I figured that out. Now I want to move on. And, you know, sure. Because uh, I, I had the whole, the, like I said, the sort of the ADHD probably. Um, well, one of the big themes I've noticed as I've talked with people is how much, especially when we're young, like our world, how limited it is to like what jobs have we seen people doing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think so a lot of us think about being teachers because. You've spent a lot of your life with an adult who's a teacher because you're right. in a classroom. Um, but but just the idea of like other things wouldn't have even seemed like options because you you actually didn't know things existed. At least for me, that was a big a big piece of it. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think um, I mean my my dad worked in nonprofit healthcare, um, and my biological father was a drummer in a band and mm-hmm. a painter. And then my mom had kind of various retail jobs. Mm-hmm. And I always – I certainly would have loved to have been a drummer in a band. <laughs> but I – the other things just were never very appealing. Sure. You know? And, um, you know, I had people who owned restaurants in her family. And um, and I, I did work uh, for many years in high school. For at least four years I was working in restaurants. But I never – you know, I never thought like this is what I want to do with my life sort of. Mm-hmm. Um the, the, that was the one answer, really. Now that modulated a little bit um, because I was I I grew up in um, I of course I grew up in the South, so you go to the church all the time. Mm-hmm. But I was not a Christian. Okay, I don't think it'd be fair to say. When does that intersect with this story? Well, that comes in in college. Okay, so I was such a bad student in high school that I had two options: I could either go to East Carolina. Or I could go to this other smaller school up in the mountains called Lee's McCray College. And East Carolina, that the year I graduated from high school, had been voted the number one party school in the nation. And I went to visit 
and the weekend that I visited, I got in more trouble, and I and I basically came back to, and I reasoned to myself, if I go to East Carolina, I'll never graduate from college. <laughs> and so I went to this other smaller college in the mountains, and I sort of started. I was on the ski team, and um, I enjoyed my time. But I eventually I transferred from there to University of North Carolina Greensboro. And um, towards the end, it was really towards the end of my uh, freshman year when, so when I'd been in high school and earlier, one of the reasons I'd gotten sent away was um, to military school was because of, um, you know, sneaking out at night and drinking and um, some drugs, pot, basically. Um, and when I went to college and there were no longer any constraints whatsoever, I had a couple of episodes where I probably could have died. Hmm. And I, I think it was the realization at that point that like part of the reason I was doing some of the things I was doing is just because my parents and my parents were no longer there to stop me and also no longer there to be bothered by what I was doing. And so the rationale for what I was doing had sort of left. Hmm. And I was like, there's got to be more to life than this. And um, so, yeah. So, that, so, so into freshman year, go back to Charlotte. Over the summer, I started going to church regularly and listening, basically. Sure, sure. And uh, transferred the next year, different school, almost immediately got involved in the Baptist Student Fellowship and the InterVarsity. And it was in December of that year that I kind of met Jesus. So what were you studying? So I was studying history. Okay. okay. Yeah, so history and classical studies. And actually, I, when I first went to, uh, one of the reasons why I chose Greensboro was that they had an archaeology program. Okay. And so like many kids growing up, I loved Indiana Jones. Sure. You know, and I started, and of course I loved history, so I was doing a double major, history and archaeology. And uh, there was a professor there who was a very kind fellow and he actually did um i think he it was probably because my life had sort of changed and i become much more serious about studying and he was very welcoming and kind of trying to recruit me to uh go overseas with him because he would go every summer and work on this dig he'd been working on this dig a small island called the island of maklos hmm. in the mediterranean and he'd been working at the site for i don't know 15 20 years and uh he wanted me to go with him with of course, of course a group of students um on the dig and i I don't think I, I think the, I can't remember. I mean, it was, maybe it was my senior year, junior, junior year or something like that. And I decided not to, I wound up saving the money that I would have spent there to going to seminary. But I, one of the reasons I switched out of the archaeology major was because first of all, there were no bullwhips. <laughs> <laughs> and then seriously, so Indy led you astray. Yeah. Indy led, man, I can't believe that Indiana Jones. Um, but it was, uh, it was just, it was kind of the tedium I got into it, and I was like, I really like elements of archaeology. I like the discovery mm-hmm. component, um, the sort of mystery and the puzzle. Um, but I knew my professor, who was deeply committed, had been at one site for 20 years. Like, he'd been on that piece of dirt hmm. working it. And you had to draw. Like, these people were, at that time at least, they were, you know, you had to have this very good um, artistic skill, and I just didn't have that. So I thought... 
it's probably isn't for me. So I switched from archaeology, and I I double majored in history and classical studies. So it was really it was at that point though I guess it was in college when I became a Christian, and it was also at that point when all of a sudden I was like I like to read and learn stuff. Um, that was really when um, you know teachers would have been more like oh you know he can he could do some interesting things. Mm-hmm. So so how do you get to s- seminary then? What's the yeah? So that was um, I. I had been at um, when I was in college. I was a part of sort of a discipleship group, and you know, you're participating in and leading Bible studies, and and I was just trying to figure out what was next. And initially, I was like, "Well, I'll go to seminary and I'll get an MA in church history, and then I'll teach history mm-hmm. in high school because that's what I always wanted to do." Like I said, and so um, I visited. Covenant Seminary, which is in St. Louis, and um, the other school that I was looking at was Gordon Conwell. I couldn't go to visit the school, but um, when I visited Covenant, it was just not the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple of interactions with students, and I was like, I don't think I want to be here at this place. And uh, as it turned out, Gordon Conwell had opened a satellite their satellite campus in Charlotte. And they had opened it in my church. And so I took a year off from college after school was over, and I took a couple of classes um, while I was working. And uh, But then, you know, every, my parents actually moved uh, during that summer to Texas, and they wanted me to stay in Charlotte. And everyone was basically like, you should stay in Charlotte and just do your degree here. And it was really my pastor that said, you really should go away you should leave. He said, you should leave Charlotte and you should go to Boston where the main campus is because you need to get away from everything that's familiar and figure out what you really believe. Hmm. And that was some of the best advice I've ever received. Um, so that's what I did. And then, um, so when, so when you were in seminary, you talked about, um, sort of the initial goal was being a history teacher. What, where does that, uh, transition happen or how does that transition happen? Well, I got to seminary and studied. Um, I took a couple of classes with um, Gwynfair Walters. She um, had just completed her PhD at Oxford or Cambridge or something like that. And she'd studied with um, Eamon Duffy, who's a very famous um, uh, scholar of uh, English Reformation. And I think I took two classes with her. And they just didn't go very well, hmm. basically. Sure. And I actually, when I graduated and I, and I was going to go, I've been accepted into you know two PhD programs. I think she was kind of like, really? How did you do that? Because <laughs> I had I didn't take any more classes from her after those two, and I had sort of the experience. Um, she said at one point, I she told me, "You don't know how to make a historical argument." <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, I'm not sure what exactly she meant. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I'd had this experience and I was like, maybe, well, maybe this is not the right thing for me. Maybe I'm not supposed to be a history teacher. Maybe that was just what drew me to seminary. So I switched from an MA to an MDiv. Okay. And the MDiv is what eventually kind of gives you, um, kind of the credential to be ordained. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, well, I've got to figure out 
what is the path, you know? So I was like, and it's, it was around that same time also that I met my future wife. And so I was like, okay, I got to figure out with her, am I being called, are we being called to like ministry, ministry, missions, uh, you know, what's it going to be? And so I spent the next couple of years, we got pregnant almost immediately. Um, and so it took me a little longer than normal. It took mm-hmm. me about, cause I had multiple jobs while I was, um, in school. Were you, st- were you still certain that, that seminary was the right place for you though? Yeah. So I, so I always say when I, like when I talk to students, I was absolutely certain that I needed to go to seminary. I mean, I just knew that like that was the next step, but I didn't know what the step was after that. And that was all I could. And I felt, and I kind of like, that's how it worked was like, um, for me, I, when I, like, I remember getting in my car to drive from Charlotte to Boston, feeling like this was the best decision I had ever made, you know, uh, at that point in time, at that point in my life. And I still feel so good about, um, about doing that, about going up there. Cause I felt like I was being obedient to some calling, but I didn't know I had one idea, one inkling, you know, what I might do, but I didn't really know for sure. So once that kind of switched a little bit, then I was like, well, okay, well, I've, I'm here, so let's kind of see where this goes. I meet my wife. We have our first child. Um, and then I start um, clicking off the list of things that I'm not going to be doing. Mm-hmm. So I, we had like a – we met uh, – Julie and I met with a uh, mission – a guy who was – I think he was in the um, the Evangelical Free Church. And he came and told us about the mission program and what would it mean to be a missionary and – uh, the kind of things you have to do to raise money. And so after we had that, we both, I, I think we looked at each other and we're like, well, we're not going to be able to do that. That's not what we're called <laughs> to do. Um, and we, I, I, we always kind of function with this sense that like, if God calls one of us, then we're both going to have this sense that it's right. Right. And so I still remember I was in a, all the classes that I didn't do well in were the pastoral ministry classes, <laughs> like preaching, Pastoral ministry, pastoral counseling, spiritual formation. Those were the classes where I like I just wasn't as interested unless I turned it into like what does Augustine think about right. spiritual formation? Was it was that really disheartening though? I mean, because yeah. I, I will say, you know, most of the people I talk with, the stories that that I hear is like, well, you know, I kind of did well in this and this and I, you know, but I mean to sort of be like, here's this thing I'm gonna do when you go and like, yeah, this isn't really for me. That that's a that's a hard narrative to live, I would think. Yeah, well, and it's it was like I again I was taking it as like this is the path, and I've got to figure out hmm. exactly where this is going, and as long as I put one foot in front of the other, you know, God's been faithful. Yeah. Like He plucked me out of the reality that I've been in. Sure, led me up here, led me into the arms of this woman. You know, these all these things had happened. And, uh, so I just, I guess I just f- had this deep trust. Huh. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 I love the, the degree of faith in just even in the, yeah. I'm, I'm here. This, everything seems like it's moving in a direction, even yeah. if I don't know where. Yeah. I, and I, and I didn't, you know, and I, I, I was, I was in, so I, I do remember though, I was in the pastoral ministry class, um, and, um, in that program, look like they would have a couple of um, pastors who had t- 
taken a sabbatical from their church, mm-hmm. and they had come to sort of do some study, or maybe they were working on a D-man or something like that. And so from time to time, they would come in and um, give a talk or a lecture on what uh, actual pastoral ministry was like. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I listened to a couple of those, and I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, because I was starting to really get here the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a pastor. And this was sort of the last question like this was really the last sort of obvious thing that i was going to do mm-hmm. um and it was the day that they came in and they this was of course before um this is when we're still doing overheads mm-hmm. they came and they put their weekly schedule on the overhead and it was at that moment that the romance probably of pastoral ministry went out the window hmm. because i saw that it was like I don't know, 80% meetings and administration <laughs> and uh, and then 10% on Sunday and then maybe like 4 or 5% where you actually get prepared to do your sermon. Mm-hmm. And that was what I actually like to do, right, was to do the research and write and do the teaching. And I was like, wow, I don't – and this was two different pastors from two different places and they had very similar kinds of schedules. Now, they were probably – I probably didn't know well enough to know that things could be even vastly different from that. Sure. But at that moment, I was like, yep, this is not for me. <laughs> this is not my calling. And so I, I went. And so I think it was around that time that I was like walking through campus and I was praying, God, what do you want me to do? Like, I really want to be of use to you. Where do you want me to go? And I stumbled upon this um, flyer in the Gordon Conwell, um, the mailroom. And it was a flyer for students to apply to be. Uh, to be in the seminarian program for the World Council of Churches. So the World Council of Churches was getting ready to meet. And, of course, first of all, the World Council of Churches was the boogeyman, you know, in a place like Gordon Conwell. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that that flyer was even out was probably weird. But I saw it, and I'd already been kind of involved in an ecumenical organization in the city of Boston. And I think by that time I might have even been doing some of my internship with them. Um, but you could apply. And so I was like, well, I should apply and I have to raise the funds for this. And so I did. Um, and as it turned out, when I went to Zimbabwe for the, that assembly, which was the eighth assembly, um, I, that's where I met my doctoral advisor. That's Hmm. where I met Don. And so, yeah, yeah. So that was the, just a bizarre set of, you know, only God or only sure. like historical. Sure. <laughs> so where was it that you went for your doctorate? I went to Drew. Drew, okay. So I got into Boston University for their PhD, and then um, I went down um, December of my final year, Gordon Conwell, to Zimbabwe. And so they had the council late that year. Usually it's a little earlier. And... Um, I don't know how exactly how I met Don. Um, I think I got introduced to him by someone, but he was uh, – I just recently had a chance to sort of speak words that honored him in front of all these people. And um, the way I described him when I first met him was he was fascinating and fascinated. Hmm. And so he was – I can say that I've like hung – I've been around a genius and because he is a sort of theological and historical genius – like he's that level of intellect and that was on display in some ways at the council 
But the but the thing that really I think attracted me was that he was not just fascinating; he was fascinated in other people. And mm-hmm. like me as a student, he'd never met me. Like he spent hours talking to me, and I could see that he had that same kind of interest in other people and other traditions. Like he. Um, we're at the council and what he wants to do is we're going to kind of, we'll go to some of the council meetings, but then actually we're also going to go, we're going to leave the grounds of Zimbabwe, you know, Harare university. And we're going to go out into the bush and we're going to go to these, um, AIC tree, uh, meetings that, that, um, organize under trees. And like, we went to two or three different ones and it was like a revelation, you know? Hmm. So it was just, uh, anyway, he, he was, it was, it was, uh, it was definitely a godsend, I think. So, so what did you what what did you study then at Drew? So at Drew, so by that point in time, I had become deeply interested in Bart, uh, the theology of Karl Bart. And um, as it turned out, Don and I we were talking about. So I was at an evangelical institution. I was deeply interested in Bart, which at the time was sort of a weird thing, I guess. Hmm. Um, and I was interested in questions of social justice and or kind of kind of early interest in liberation theology. And he suggested that I look at the Bloomharts and their relationship to Bart. And so my final paper in seminary was on the Bloomharts and Bart, which eventually turned into my dissertation. Hmm. So I have this crappy 15-page paper where I talk about the influence of the Bloomhards on Bart, and I wound up actually turning that into a an actual viable dissertation project. You know, that eventually got published as a 300-something page book. Um, so I was kind of a weird anom- anomaly in the fact that I went to I went to my PhD program knowing what I wanted to study, and I actually stuck with it. Hmm. And actually wound up writing on the topic. So I wanted to go and study Bart. Um, and I wanted to study the Bloomhearts, but I had I didn't really understand who they were. Like I was deeply attracted to them, but I didn't know anything about pietism. Mm-hmm. And pietism had all those negative connotations <laughs> that it has for everyone else for me. Sure. Um, and so it was really – it was it was in uh, my doctoral program that I started taking classes on pietism and anabaptism and – I also took classes on Calvin. Um, I wrote one of my comps on Schleiermacher and, you know, so, and I, I took this fascinating course. It was probably one of the most significant courses that I took was a course on the historiography of evangelicalism. Hmm. So it was on um, historiographical method and these questions of usable history. And um, so, so as it turned out, Don Don's whole intellectual project is has been for the past 30 to 40 years um, predicated on the idea that most evangelical history and historiography operates with a kind of false consciousness as to what evangelicalism is. It acts as though evangelicalism is reformed orthodoxy and that, um, it, that, that, that what evangelicals are interested in doing is protecting orthodoxy against liberalism. But the reality is that evangelicalism has far more in common with um, uh, certain elements of dispensationalism um, and revivalism. And in revivalism, the enemy is not so much liberalism as it is um, um, nominal Christianity. And you can be a nominal Christian and be as orthodox, you know, uh, like as Wesley would say, the devil himself is orthodox. Hmm. And so when you kind of 
when you uncover that, it gives you a different way than of reading the phenomenon of evangelicalism. And that's why the pietism piece fits in as a, as a more authentic way of reading what's the real logic operative in evangelicalism. So that was kind of, I, I think, even though I'm not a scholar of evangelicalism, that class gave me um, some of the kind of intellectual apparatus for understanding all kinds of other sure. things. Sure. So you're finishing your dissertation. When is that? that you're... Um, so we live in New Jersey, 99 to 2004. Okay. So we live, you know, 20 minutes away from Manhattan when 9-11 happens and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And I think it was, maybe it was 2003, I guess. I guess it was 2003. My wife had an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and I think that that was, it was either in 2002 or early in 2003. I can't remember. It happened in February. And at that point, um, I decided that we wanted to, we needed to move closer to one side of the family or the other because we were alone when that happened and it was hard. And I felt too that we had, um, we'd been at school. I'd finished all my comps or most of my comps, you know, um, all my coursework. And my wife had, my wife, and of course, my wife wants to be connected to family. You know, either my family or hers. Mm-hmm. It's important. And where is her family? Her family was here. Oh, so okay. This is where she's from. So I didn't, I didn't realize. So there was yeah. a Minnesota connection. Yeah. So okay. she grew up in Edina. Okay. <laughs> so she's a she's a cake eater. She was a um, a Dinah Hornet. Um, and uh, we decided we kind of looked like the Charlotte area, Carolinas. What are there? How many job opportunities might be there? And then. The Twin Cities, how many job opportunities? And it seemed like there were more potential places where I might get a job in the Twin Cities than in Charlotte. And so that's why we chose to come back to Minnesota. Okay. So then how did you end up at Bethel? Yeah, that was a, I mean, that was kind of a more circuitous. Uh, I didn't, of course, I didn't know Bethel existed. Sure. Right. And like, I don't think people in Minnesota know like Furman exists or something like mm-hmm. that, you know. So it's well-regarded regional school, but outside of the region, not very many people know about it. And I think it was like 2001 um, when I I believe it was Greg Boyd who was leaving. And they advertised for his position, and I applied for that position, um, even though I was still early in my program. I think I had finished my coursework, but I hadn't finished my comps. <clears throat> Excuse me, and a good friend of mine, Peter Heltzel, also applied. And I, it was oh, we were at the AAR. I think it was in Toronto, and I had like a meeting with Mike Holmes, Paul Eddy, and Jim Bilby. And it was just like a meet and greet, and we were talking to them. And uh, the process was kind of moving along. Um, and I think uh, I didn't make the cut, so they invited. Peter and someone else out and they shut down the search. Hmm. They just didn't like the candidates eventually. So that happened. I was like, well, if I move out to Minnesota, I don't even care. I don't even care if Bethel likes me or not. Cause they didn't like me the first time, you know? So when we move out here, I was thinking my wife went to St. Olaf. So I was like, well, maybe I can find a way to get into St. Olaf or Augsburg or 
mm-hmm. whatever. I didn't have any necessarily any aspirations. Uh, but we got here, and I did, of course, immediately reach out to people I had known in order to find adjunct positions. And Mike, um, I, I knew Mike Holmes, I knew Amos Young, um, and I got to know Mark Reisner a little bit. And so they invited me. I think it was the fall of 2004 I taught uh, Christian theology um, as an adjunct. And then in the spring, they had a they had a position open up, which was this position in historical theology. And effectively, it was supposed to replace Roger Olson. And I think that they had sort of, I think that they had hired Amos, perhaps, after Roger left. I think so, yeah. And and so he was nominally in the position. He taught the historical theology class, but obviously that wasn't necessarily his main discipline. And so the idea probably was, I don't really know all the politics behind it or discussion, but they wanted someone who would actually teach historical theology the humanities program wanted someone who would be involved because they were getting ready to expand the program and um yeah so it just worked out so what were your impressions of bethel as you you know as you came here in your in your early years teaching here well my first impression was it was great i really enjoyed it i enjoyed my students um that was as an adjunct they were actually pretty they're actually pretty kind to me when i look back um, but that first semester in 2005 was so hard when I was full time. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so hard. Um, I didn't, my teaching evaluations were not very good. <laughs> and I had, I had this, so I had a student who, um, eventually I think she had to withdraw from school because she struggled with some, um, some mental illness issues, but I was a new teacher, and so we were meeting, and she was having all these issues with me and my teaching style. And I was just like, maybe it is me. I don't know. Like, how do I help this person? How do I serve this person? And, and of course, she doesn't like, she didn't like me. That was coming out clearly in mm-hmm. the interactions. And so, and then I had another student who broke into my office and stole an exam that I caught. Yeah. And so I was, I got soured. Hmm. initially by I was like who are these people like I thought this was a Christian school and uh, wow this is hard like how long am I going to be here exactly Um, but then the second semester things kind of righted themselves in terms of teaching Um, and I still remember I would go down. This is when we used to actually meet in the teaching lounge, mm-hmm. and like teachers would show up in the teachers' right. lounge. I remember going in there a couple of times when GW and John Lawyer were kind of holding court, you know, and they would be down there. And I think I was a little bit like I, I had kind of put on my defensive, you know, armor. Like, okay, I guess I'll just deal with the private school kids the way that they. That this is what they want because uh, I'd gone to a public university mm-hmm. and um, and it was really John who was sharing s- this um, episode of a student he had had who had like come from a divorced family and was having serious issues and like on the verge of committing suicide and all those kind of things and there was just something about the way he talked about it that just opened my eyes and like rekindled a sense of compassion and help me let go of um, 
my own like you know badly forming ideas i guess mm -hmm. about who it was that i was working with so they were really in a way like instrumental for helping me as a young teacher like um wanting to open myself up more to my students rather than close down because once you have a student break into your office you kind of feel mm -hmm. a little bit violated let me, I, yeah let me ask you this about teaching i mean I, one of the sort of natural questions to ask people teaching at bethel is sort of the faith integration question but teaching theology i feel like that's probably a, a layup kind of question but uh, uh in terms of thinking about yourself as a person who has a theology and then teaching theology to students, I, yeah, yesterday I interviewed Stacey Hunter Hecht, and I feel like it's almost a similar thing in terms of you have political views, but then you're also teaching political science. You know, how, how, does, that, um, how does that work as, as somebody who's – how much of yourself do you feel like you can put into working with students, uh, especially teaching a course like uh, Christian theology, which is kind of a, an introduction to theology without feeling like – um, you're indoctrinating students to a particular view. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you can't. You're. It's impossible to be totally neutral, right? Right. And um, in terms of course content, there are clearly places where I give an array um, of options on a given topic. I can't. I can't do that with all mm -hmm. of the topics because there's just not time. But my basic orientation and goal is to help students learn how to think faithfully for themselves. So what I'm trying to do is um, model as best I can um, in, an, in as unobtrusive a fashion as I can the idea that we're called to reflect on what it is that we believe, that we say that we believe. And that... Sometimes this does, I think, lead to certain kinds of conclusions. So I think there are certain theological positions that are better than others. Mm -hmm. But other times this can lead to multiple, you know, perspectives. And each of them has some sort of role to play uh, in the church or in the, in the kind of larger life of the, of the church. Um, and I think in some ways I've been shaped by Don in this that um, – you know, Don is kind of theologically, he's more like Karl Barth, mm -hmm. but he's ecclesiologically a Wesleyan. Hmm. But he's done a lot of his research and work on Pentecostalism. And I, it has always uh, baffled me his ability to, like, really take Pentecostalism very, very seriously, which he does. And it baffles many Pentecostals because they think that he sees, he really truly understands and sees the truth of Pentecostalism. So why doesn't he embrace it and become a Pentecostal? Hmm. And... I think his sense is that the, the Pentecostalism has to be honored so that it can bring its gifts to the larger church, even if, you know, he himself is not a Pentecostal. And that's what he's tried in his research to kind of cultivate, that they should have their own voice and be able to speak out of the logic of their tradition. And so I see that as something, a posture that I need to give to my students, that they need to have their own voice to bring how they are thinking about this faithfully to the larger conversation of the church. And that's kind of the way I try to, hmm. to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't give some of my perspectives on things. Sure. Um, sure. But the ultimate goal is really get them to think 
Right, you know, right. for themselves. Well, because I think if you can get them to think for your for themselves, then you can bring yourself into the classroom more. Right. Because because they know it's a safe space to say, I don't know if I don't know how I how I think about how you're thinking. You know, yeah. and, and I, I imagine that's a that's a good place to get to. Right. If you can with, with right, and you and if you're gonna have um, the curious, you know, that kind of curious alchemy of an actual encounter and dialogue in the classroom, there really has to be this sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. Right, that we're like fully ourself. We're fully bringing ourself to bear on certain topics and inter- in interacting with each other. We're not reducible necessarily to the same. Um, and so, I try to do that the best I can on a two hundred level course. Sure, sure, you know? sure. Um, it's in a way like I really like to teach humanities. Um, in some ways, um, pr- maybe more in some ways because you get them into reading the great works and they have to think with the, some of the greatest minds, not so much that they agree with those great minds, but they see what it takes to think mm-hmm. for themselves, you know, and they'll hopefully take something away from that. Right. So. right. Another question I have, um, you talked about the sort of the significance of, of moving to Boston, leaving um, where you're from. One question I've, I've, I've always interested in is, uh, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I've spent my whole life here with the exception of one year where I lived in, uh, in Mobile, Alabama for a year. I'm just interested in, um, culturally, like being Southern. What does that, what does that mean? And what does that mean being somebody who grew up in, in the South and now living not there? And maybe it means nothing. I don't know. You know, that's a great question. And I think one of the gifts that I received by living in Boston and now Minnesota is I've come to figure out elements of what it means to be Southern because I, you know, it's like, uh, maybe on some level, like you can talk about what it means to be Minnesotan, but like on another level, it's like the water that you swim in. Sure. Absolutely. So how do you reflect on that? You know? Um, so being outside of it has helped me, I guess. So, I mean, I, for the longest time, I wanted to have nothing to do with being Southern because the way that it was defined in my family was, um, to be Southern is not to be Northern. You know, um, all the Northern Yankees, um, and all their book learning, you know, or whatever it was. Uh, and I go North, uh, I start my schooling in Boston and I found out, oh, you know, these, there's nothing wrong with these people. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. They're just like us in a certain way, but they have these other commitments, uh, you know, around justice and whatnot that maybe other folks in the South didn't. But I guess for a while I was more like, I don't really want to be part of that but over time i've come to like love um the the sense of pain that you have in the south you know the i mean jazz and blues uh which is obviously predominantly coming out of the african-american community is also deeply entwined in white communities and there's just this kind of uh, there was this book um, I think it was on like Flannery O'Connor and the, I think it was either the title or the subtitle was the Christ haunted South. Hmm. You know, there's just this sense of like tragedy. that's part of what it means to be Southern, you know, so it's sort of normal to expect that you're going to have tragic stories and tragic figures in your family. Mm-hmm. And most of your family is probably not going to go to college, you know, or that's just not part of. And so, you know, it's the telling of stories. Um, 
uh, and, and so it's the music, it's the food, it's the telling of stories. I guess those are some of the things that I think about. Sure. What it means to be Southern. And I also have come to realize that there's no, like, like, like being Christian, there's no one definition. So certainly when I, when I go back down, like I've had a couple of times when my parents were like, um, you've just been living in the North just too long. You are no longer a Southerner. And I, and I would, and I would kind of internalize that. And uh, for a long time, I was like, I don't care. I don't want to be a Southerner. But then I kind of realized, well, well, wait a minute. There are parts of me that are Southern that I just can't deny. And as it turns out, who are they or who is whoever it is that's saying that to me? Who are they to define exactly what that means? Sure, sure. Because you find out that there are these pockets. Sure. You know, there are pockets of places where people are just as Southern in the very same way that I am. Certainly. I don't know. I don't. I mean, what does it mean to be Minnesotan? I don't know. No, I, 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 like, I don't. Like, I mean, I, I miss yeah. like collard greens, and I miss uh, pecan pie. I will I, say most of the things I miss about my one year living in the South has to do with food. Is yeah, uh, it was great. <laughs> right. I mean, I miss the warm weather. I miss the trees. Oh my gosh, sure. I miss the trees. Um, that is the one thing about Minnesota. There are lots of trees, but they don't grow very tall. Sure. And uh, I miss the sort of towering oaks. Well, and there's – I mean this in a good way, uh, and I guess in all ways, but there's the sense that things seem kind of overgrown because they don't die. And here, everything dies and then comes back. Right. So there, it seems – things seem newer all the time where I think about being in Mobile and like it's just everything seemed overgrown because I, I kept – that whole year I was there, I kept waiting for everything to die so it could – you could have this new growth and you right. never had that. Yeah. That's right. You're, I think you're right. Um, I was always, as a kid, I was always kind of fascinated with trees. I don't know why, but like, I just found them to be really beautiful and I miss that. That's one of the things that I miss, sort of some of the topography mm-hmm. and the, and of course the warm. Sure. Weather. I kind of miss some of that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, well t- to wrap up, I have three, uh, three questions, um, that I ask everybody, uh, the first, and you don't need to have a long drawn out answer to this or, you know, but it just, or, or feel like you need to have an answer at all. But, um, if you were... Th- if someone were to come to you and say, Christian, if you could design your ideal school or your ideal curriculum, what might that start to look like? Oh, goodness. Um, we're talking about college, university? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. A lot like the president wanted <laughs> Bethel. I mean, I, um, how do you mean? Like, like, what would I have them? What topics, subjects? Yeah, I mean, well, you, I mean, it could be. I mean, other answers people have given have talked about. Some people have described schools that were much smaller, much oh. more of a community. Others talked about more curricular, like Stacy Heck talked about, um, sort of the importance of math and how we don't have enough math in our curriculum and how that mm. that would affect the way students um, students who are pushed in that can affect the way that they are in, an, uh, analytical in certain ways because you're building a different kind of set of, so there's lots of, you know, different ways people have kind of approached that question. But. Um, okay. Well, I mean, I guess working from the template that I have, um, which is Bethel, this is, I mean, I have adjuncted at other places, but this is the place where that, where, where I'm most deeply Entrenched. I mean, first of all, the liberal arts interdisciplinary piece would be a key component, and i th- I think I think the the great books mm-hmm. element would be a major part. Um, but um, 
as a kind of twist, I would want to significantly expand that beyond sort of the Western canon, I guess. Sort of start getting students into reading, you know, the Buddhist literature, mm-hmm. uh, reading Sub-Saharan African literature. Because um, I want to know. I want to understand that. Like, mm-hmm. So I'm imagining this, this is sure. a place that I would teach. Sure, you yeah. Know? And um, I also kind of feel like... Um, Helping students realize that uh, there's always been this sense of a global context in which we're located as Christians. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I do like the you know the sense that there would be a kind of um, that this would be a Christian mm-hmm. university. I'm not. I mean, it could just be an art, liberal arts, but in that sense, I kind of feel like the the theological theory. Um, I would want that to be present and to undergird and a taking seriously of history. Um, yeah. So I guess all the things that I really like and love. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And, 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 and less math, okay. less math. And warm actually. weather and trees. Lord, warm weather and trees. Uh, yeah. And enough, uh, to be able to pay people's salaries. There you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, last two questions. And these are, these are tied together. If you could recommend a book, um, and it doesn't need to be the best book you've ever read or something like that, but a book that would help somebody understand some element of you. What book would you recommend? Some element of me. Wow. Well, that's hard. We're surrounded by books, so. Yeah, but which one, <laughs> you know? Where can we start, I guess, maybe is another way. Um. Well, I mean, this little book that uh, I published um, in the Bloomheart series, I mean, I, I have been so deeply shaped by their spirituality. It's not a logical um, treatise. It's a short sort of series of spiritual meditations and aphorisms by mm-hmm. Christoph Bloomheart. It's called The Gospel of God's Reign. If you want to understand my spirituality, you would start there, I think. Great. And then uh, final question, um, one other media recommendation. Can be another book, can be a film, music, anything, just any other thing you would recommend to people. Um, a, river's run, a River Runs Through It or Magnolia, depending on how you feel, <laughs> depending on whether <laughs> you can handle uh, <laughs> um I think Magnolia, to me, like the – I've had a, I've had a very interesting – and um, not typical life of the average Christian professor, maybe, mm-hmm. um, that's been much more shaped by kind of human messiness. Mm-hmm. And Magnolia gets at some of that, but there's still grace. Mm-hmm. But then there's something also in, to me, A River Runs Through It, there's this kind of, um, you know, life is a mystery, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I that's one of the things I love about that movie. Anyway, th- those would be... Fantastic. Yeah. Anything you want to plug? Any books that are recently? Oh yeah, out there very is soon? a recent book that was published. Actually, coming out. Yeah, available online January eighth. This book, Reclaiming Pietism, Retrieving an Evangelical Tradition, where we're where we're you know I'm trying to bring with Roger Olson. We're trying to bring um, a kind of pietist lens for understanding what it, what evangelicalism is, and also for renewing evangelical theology, um, and hopefully for kicking against the reformed orthodox hegemony you know so 
And it's plus it's a great book. And it's cheap, 18 bucks. <laughs> All right, Christian Collinsman, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Right. Take care. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths with cinnamon now.